Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 12 of the Essential X-Lapsed. And uh, we're back in, uh, well, our flagship book for a couple of episodes, not too terribly long. We'll be bebopping back around the Marvel Universe in uh, in no time before uh, settling in uh, in our flagship for the foreseeable future. But today, we're going to be talking about X-Men number 8. Set in November 1964, covered it. I believe this will be the last issue of X-Men for the year 1964. So we're just uh, we're just really hustling through these, aren't we? Um, now today's issue is called "The Uncanny Threat of Dot 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 Eunice, the Untouchable." Written and edited by Stan Lee, with pencils by Jack Kirby, inks Chick Stone, letters S Rosen, colors by somebody, and a cover price of 12 cents American. Now we open, and I mean, stop me if you heard this one before. Uh, you'll you'll never guess what we're opening with here. Um, yeah, of course you will. It's a danger room training session. Now this one is a little bit unique. In in rather than having you know a pervert in a wheelchair looming over their shoulders, this time the X Men are being observed by Professor S. Scott Summers. And what do we got here? Well, we got Beast balancing on some sort of disc. Iceman is carrying an ice pole. Warren is flying, probably pretending to dodge something. And Jean, well, she's using her telekinesis to sew. She's uh, running yarn through holes in a piece of paper. Now Angel, while pretending to dodge stuff, doesn't realize that he's about to fly right into a great big net, which he does. Now Kid Cool turns to check it out, nearly hitting Beast with his elongated ice pick. Um, that, okay, I never thought I'd say that. Um, anyway... Scott proceeds to lecture Warren about being more careful. You know, after all, what if that net was actually Magneto? (gasps) Well, Iceman has a hearty laugh, which uh, prompts Cyclops to optically obliterate his elongated ice pick. I mean, talk about hitting a guy below the belt, right? It's here where Bobby decides to show Cyclops how much he's improved at using his powers. And it's the first time that we see him change from his, you know, fluffy snowman look to his more familiar, slicker Iceman look. Cyclops commends him on increasing his degree of cold. Angel jokes that Bobby's gone transparent, making him a real Sue Storm. And I don't think he'd be able to get away with calling Bobby a real Sue Storm these days. Cyclops then checks in on sewing Jean, and he congratulates her on only screwing up once. As he tells her this, he thinks to himself that, uh, well, he's got a massive case of the hot pants for Ms. Gray. Now Jean, by the way, is back in her head sock costume, so the uh, cat's eye look wasn't... A permanent change, at least not yet. Off to the side, Hank does some balancey stuff, and he holds a line with his toes, you know, beast stuff. Cyclops, for whatever reason, can't seem to bring himself to give a compliment, and basically congratulates Beast for doing what he's supposed to do. It's kind of like one of those bosses who will, like, never tell you you're doing a good job, but instead might sarcastically be like, well, thank you for doing your job, you know, thank you for being proficient in the position for which I've hired you. Kind of a dick thing to do. Now, Scott then gives the team the afternoon off. Jean asks if Scott will come out with them while thinking to herself that she's got a massive case of the hot pants for Mr. Summers, but he declines. So, we jump to later, where Hank and Bobby are heading toward the Coffee-A-Go-Go. You might be asking why in all the blue hells would Beast ever agree to go back there. Uh, Maybe the coffee is just that good. Anyway, on their way, they happen across a mob of folks looking up to the top of a nearby building. Up there, we see a young child clinging to a rooftop water tower. Hank, worrying that the little fellow won't be able to hold on forever, removes his shoes and runs up the side of the building. 
Now the mob takes note. They realize that this wall-walking man is not only a mutant, but very likely the X-Men's very own beast. They don't actually see his face, though, so the secret identity is still secret. Hank climbs the building and saves the tot, returning him to his negligent father in the penthouse apartment below. Beast then drops to the ground, and whoo boy, the mood has certainly changed. And, uh, I mean, this is, uh, this is a big turning point. This is a seminal moment in X-Men history here, because suddenly, the folks there, the mob, they become paranoid and, and violent. They even begin theorizing that Beast planted the kid on the roof just so he could save him in order to show humans that mutants aren't dangerous. Okay. Uh, I mean, the X-Men have been on the cover of how many newspapers at this point? I mean, we just saw in Thor, uh, Journey into Mystery, last episode, that they've got statues in the Hall of Heroes exhibit at the World's Fair. So why the sudden change of heart now? Uh, Whatever the case, the mob rushes Hank and Bobby, who just narrowly escape without giving up their secret identities and their clothes, because they were tearing at their clothes as well. From here, we go to uh, Stan Lee's favorite time-lapse later. You know, minutes later. Uh, We join Hank and Bobby in Professor S's office. Now, Hank is disgusted with homo sapiens and says he's through helping them. He even goes so far as to suggest that Magneto was right all along. Hey, somebody should put that on a t-shirt. Hank then quits the team. I mean, man, what is this? Ben Percy's Teen Titans? Every single issue seems to feature somebody quitting or threatening to quit the team. Just then, a strange blue-furred man appears in the study from out of nowhere. Now, Scott has not the foggiest idea what's going on, but Hank seems to. He immediately recognizes this strange, bestial fellow as himself. Now, Bobby compliments Hank on his body hair skill. Uh, Gene and Warren enter the study to see what's up. Now, this blue-furred beast informs Hank that he is the next evolution of Hank McCoy. Is it, though? I mean, is it? I mean, Hank, you did drink that weird potion during Amazing Adventures to make you furry in the first place. Ah, well, he reveals that he has come from the future to ask the world's strangest teenagers for a little bit of help. At this point, Scott's about had it, and he says he's going to call the professor. The Blue Beast strongly urges against that, claiming that Xavier would simply mind-wipe the lot of them should he ever discover that this meeting has occurred. So, uh, yeah, old Hank sure has Xavier's number. Now, young Hank asks why his elder self would ever risk breaking the protocols of the space-time continuum. Old Hank says that things are just that urgent and pressing in the present, or their future. Bobby asks if this has to do with their children. Old Hank points the finger at Scott and says, hey, this is all his fault. Well, his future self's fault. Uh, He tells the kids that he needs them to come with him in order to stop Scott from committing mutant genocide. Now, the kids don't believe it. And so Beast asks Gene to read his mind to prove it. And Gene's all, uh, dude, I can't read minds. I'm just a telekinetic. And Hank apologizes and reveals that she'll eventually be a telepath as well. So space-time continuum, be damned. Warren asks if the Professor X in the future can do anything to stop Cyclops, and Beast just looks to the ground. You see, Professor X in the future is dead, having been killed by Cyclops himself when he went Dark Phoenix during Avengers vs. X-Men. He doesn't want to tell the kids this, but eventually does, only to stop Gene from calling the professor up. Now, I'm not sure Gene actually could call the professor here, but I guess we'll allow it. Scott, as you might imagine, takes great offense to this. Young Hank, well, he believes it. He believes it, though. He claims that no matter what the era, 
he would never threaten the space-time continuum unless it was absolutely necessary, and so there must be something to this. Now, Angel asks the tough question. If Scott grows up to do all this bad stuff, including killing Professor X, why doesn't the Blue Beast just kill Scott here and now? Well, Beast reveals that he can't cross that line. He then leaves the team to, in the study to consider his offer of coming into the future present. Minutes later, I mean, we'll assume minutes later, uh, the X-Men are in their battle togs and they're ready to head to the future present. Blue Beast opens up a time cube and bada-bing, bada-boom, away they go. They arrive at the Jean Grey School for Higher Learning in all its 2012 glory. Jean starts to realize that, hey, if the school is named after me, then, huh, well, I'm probably not going to be meeting my older self here. Scott, unsure of what to do, he decides to call up Professor X on his visual image telephone gimmick. And we find out that Xavier is descending into an almost bottomless cave in the Balkans in search of Lucifer. Scott asks for advice. You know, what, what should he do about the beast? He wants to quit the team. Chuck says, hey, there ain't nothing you can do. And also, don't worry about it because there's no way Beast will ever join up with the Brotherhood. Now, as Scott and Charles disconnect their psychic call, Beast pops his head back into the office to, once again, tell Scott that he's quitting the team. I mean, have you ever, you ever work with someone like this? Like, they would threaten to quit constantly, just like when you were around, like, just for the attention. Maybe an even better example is, like, when someone in an online community, social media, a forum, they keep threatening to, like, leave the platform. It's like, just go already. Quit with the threats, right? Just go. Now, that, that's how Beast strikes me right now. He, he wants to quit, but he also wants people to watch him storm out. Now, from here, we jump ahead many minutes later, a whole week's worth of minutes, in fact, and we see the Beast's new lot in life. He's no longer a superhero. Now, he's a professional wrestler, which is the go-to profession for retired heroes in the Silver Age. Now, as Hank is wheeled down to the squared circle in a cage, he thinks to himself that he'll be a millionaire within the year. His ring name, by the way, is, uh... Well, you have any guesses? It's, it's the Beast, because of course it is. That certainly doesn't give anything away, does it? I mean, we got an ape-like fellow with giant feet and hands. I mean feet that we were writing poetry about not too long ago, and he calls himself the Beast. I mean, this is just a week after the X-Man Beast was nearly mobbed by a bunch of fear and haters. Oh well, let's get to the match. Uh, the Beast is currently being pitted against the untouchable champion of the world, Eunice. Now the bell rings and we get a few pages of Hank literally hurling himself at the champ. And, you know, bouncing off his force field. It's probably not a spoiler to say that the untouchable Eunice is actually the somewhat evil mutant Eunice the Untouchable, is it? Eh? Uh, Hank ricochets off of Eunice one more time, bouncing into the first row of the crowd. The fans call him a bum and shove him off. Now, as he gathers his bearings, Beast realizes that there's a familiar face in the crowd. It's actually not Magneto, believe it or not. It's Mastermind there on behalf of Magneto. Uh, Beast is so taken aback that he doesn't even realize that he's counted out of the match, so Eunice remains our untouchable champion. Backstage, Mastermind meets up with Eunice. Now, this match was kind of an exhibition for the champ as he's trying to get hooked up with the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Mastermind tells him that he's still got a bit more to prove, because Magneto isn't keen on being disappointed again. Now, that's a reference to the Blob's short stint with the baddies not too long ago. Eunice asks, what must he do to prove himself? Well, any guesses what Mastermind suggests? Well, naturally, Eunice has to find the X-Men. Which, I mean, you were just in the ring with one and didn't notice, so we're not off to the best start here. 
Later, Eunice, in his spiffy gangster dud, saunters down a nearby street, a street where a bank is currently being robbed. He thinks to himself that he should just take the stolen cash from these robbers, and so he does, with ease. The robbers start shooting at him, but, you know, force field. And so bullets ricochet in every direction, probably killing dozens upon dozens of civilians. But, eh, that's damage control's problem, isn't it? Just then, the four remaining X-Men fly overhead in their, I suppose, rebuilt helicopter. Cyclops reveals that Cerebro pinged a new mutant in this area, which I suppose would have triggered the uh, unknown light to start flashing on that cheap-looking console. Angel hops out of the chopper to get a closer look, and he finds Eunice, whom he bounces off of because force field. The rest of the X-Men casually jog up to check in. Cyclops attempts to blast Eunice with his optic beams, but they ricochet all over the place, probably killing dozens upon dozens of civilians, but that's damage controls. Pr- oh, never mind. Eunice then proves that uh, while he cannot be touched, he can do some touching of his own. He punches Cyclops in the shoulder as though he just saw a punch buggy drive past. Cyclops, realizing that the Beast isn't on the team anymore, decides to do that thing where Beast hurls his entire body at the bad guy. As you might imagine, this does not work that well. I mean, it doesn't work at all. Eunice grabs Scott and throws him across the street. Now, while in midair, Scott calls out Plan G5. Now, this instructs Marvel Girl to catch him with her TK and set him down gently. Would she have just not helped him if he didn't say G5? Like, would she just let him splatter on the ground or into a wall or something? Was she just standing there awaiting orders? Is she just a damned idiot? I, I don't know. Scott then calls for a maneuver F12. Now, this is code for Iceman to encase Eunice in an ice shell. I mean, funny how that's Kid Cool's go-to move anyway, and yet we've never heard it referred to as F12. Maybe Professor S is more formal about the maneuvers than Professor X was, I don't know. Whatever the case, this doesn't work so great. Eunice is able to use his force field to smash himself free, and ice shards go in every which direction, probably killing dozens upon... uh, Never mind. Angel and Eunice then wrestle for a bit. Eunice grabs Angel in a weird-looking headlock, to which Warren begins to fly, threatening that Eunice will eventually lose his grip and plummet to the ground to his doom. Eunice isn't shaken because he knows that the X-Men wouldn't ever just let him die, so he must have read that Iron Man story we covered a few episodes back. Let's sidebar here briefly. Eunice claims that he knows that the X-Men aren't killers, yes? So it stands to reason that this is public knowledge. I mean, as a matter of fact here, Warren thinks to himself that they'd taken a pledge never to cause harm in the very next panel. So, if it's well known that the X-Men won't ever cause harm, why in all hells were Beast and Iceman mobbed by those fear and haters? I mean, this feels a little bit forced, doesn't it? A way to differentiate the X-Men from the other Marvel heroes here. I mean, it's definitely seminal X-lore, but this shift in tone was... uh, Far less than smooth, I think that's fair to say. Anyway, back to the story here. Now, the X-Men decide to head back to the mansion to try to figure out a way to take Eunice out. Upon arrival, they find Hank McCoy. He's tinkering with a device in the lab. Now, he reveals that he's working on a counterweapon to take down Eunice, one that will increase Eunice's power. Huh, now this scares the X-Men into thinking McCoy is in cahoots with the baddie. And since nobody actually stops to explain anything, Cyclops just fires an optic blast in Beast's direction, destroying a whole bunch of lab equipment, while Beast flees out a window and the X-Men follow. Minutes later, 
Beast has arrived in Eunice's office uh, I don't know, maybe he's an accountant or something, I don't know He's on the phone with Mastermind, asking him to explain that to Magneto that he won't fail him next time Beast pops his head in and tells him that there won't be a next time He then blasts him with the device, thus increasing his powers to ridiculous levels Now the X-Men arrive just in time to see Beast ricochet off of Eunice's force field now, Papa Yunus is very happy, and he deduces that the Beast has betrayed his team in order to join up with him. And, of course, the X-Men also think this. Beast attempts to explain, but Cyclops ain't fitting to listen. Yunus leaves um, without trying to fight the X-Men for some reason. I thought that was the whole point, to prove himself to Magneto, huh? Whatever. He goes to the gym, because, you know, people go to the gym to get healthy, right? In theory, I mean, you might go there to lift weights, do some cardio, get on the bike... Well, Eunice goes there to smoke cigarettes. And so as he reaches for his pack of smokes, he discovers that he can't touch them. Hmm. You see, when Beast amped up Eunice's power, he made it so he literally couldn't touch or be touched by anything. Now we follow Eunice down the street where everything is flying away from him, like bricks are literally pulling themselves off the side of buildings to get away. And I I mean, we've all been there, right? Uh, He then heads to a steak shack and orders a meal, only the meat flies away from him, too. You you might see where this is headed now. We jump back to the X-Men, where Bobby suggests that Scott call the Professor to see what to do about the bouncing, betraying beast. And Scott tells him to settle down a bit. Then, Angel swoops by with a plastic bubble for them to drop over Eunice. Why, at this point, Beast can't just tell him what his plan was? I I couldn't say. Uh, This seems like a perfectly good waste of a plastic bubble, because... We're never going to see it again. Uh, The phone rings, and Cyclops is sure that it's Iceman calling in. Because, you see, he was sent to follow Eunice around the city. Gene worries about Bobby being out on the streets alone. I mean, after all, he is just 16 years old. Scott reminds her that he's a fully graduated X-Man, just as she is. The X-Men then arrive on the street, where Eunice is frantically attempting to stuff his face. He's starving, you see. I mean, it must be minutes since he's eaten last, and uh, his amped-up powers ain't letting him shove anything into his mouth. At this point, Beast finally explains the situation to him, and he offers to negate the supercharge if Eunice promises to be a good boy and not join up with Magneto. Eunice promises to go back to being just a plain old world champion wrestler. Beast blasts him again with the device, assuring him that should Eunice go back on his word, he'll zap him again and then just destroy the device. So Eunice is happy that he can eat once more and shoves either a slice of strawberry cake or a really odd-looking sandwich wedge into his mouth. We wrap up with the X-Men giving three cheers to the Beast, and we are out of here. Next time out, we got Avengers vs. X-Men, round one. But we're not done with this book yet. We got ourselves a letters page to attend to here. Let's jump right in. We're going to start with Richard in Minneapolis. He loves the X-Men, just loves them. He hates what Jean's new headdress does to her russet tresses. Mm. Though he likes the cat's eye mask, he doesn't like the new hairdo that she wears to compliment it. Well, you don't have to worry about that for long, pal. He likes Wanda and Pietro, but doesn't feel as though they ought to join the X-Men. He wants to see them guest star in other books, to which I say, well, you just wait. He specifically wants to see Wanda in a metaphysical duel with Doctor Strange, and, uh, well, you'll have to wait a little while longer for that. He doesn't like Namor being referred to as a mutant, and would like a no prize for having this opinion. Okay. Uh, He also requests that his no prize be sent to Limbo, where he can pick it up when he has absolutely nothing better to do. And I think we just learned why Dick is short for Richard. 
Stan balks at the no-prize comment, suggesting that postage to limbo is just way too outrageous. And I mean, what an odd letter. <laughs> you know, it's funny, you think about somebody actually pulling out the paper, pulling out a pen, writing this down, putting a stamp on an envelope, throwing this in a mailbox. I mean, what do I... okay. Speaking of which, let's check in with Doug in Iowa. Now, he loved issue six so much that he couldn't wait to find his writing paper to send in a letter to tell Stan Lee that he loved issue six so much that he couldn't wait to find his writing paper. And that's it. <laughs> okay, Doug. Cool story. Uh, Gerald in Oregon, or Oregon, however you say that. I'm from New York. I don't know how to say things. He uh, questions Namor being a mutant, and he suggests that they refer to him instead as a hybrid. Stan doesn't think that's a terrible idea. Terry in Idaho. He says the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants are overexposed. Give them a rest, Stan. And he loved issue six all the same. Mixed messages. Vincent in Detroit. He responds to a letter hack back in issue six that stated that Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver should join the X-Men or get their own book. Vinny thinks this is a terrible idea because Wanda and Pietro are the most original villains ever created. Wow, the bar was low back in 1964. Nick in Philadelphia. He enjoyed issue six. He likes Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch. Would like to see more of a budding romance between Wanda and Namor. Okay. Uh, Ronald in Michigan. He compliments Stan's characterization on early issues of Fantastic Four, but tells him that he ruined it later by making all of the characters in that book act like comedians. He hopes that Stan doesn't screw up the X-Men the very same way. Stan, uh, you know, takes this, uh, takes this on the chin. He just kind of brushes it off. William in Brooklyn. He's got a numbered list, my very favorite kind of letter. One, give Iceman back his boots. Jeez, what is it with Bobby's booties here? Everybody's writing in about this. Two, give the X-Men an X-Mobile. Three, introduce the X-Men to Daredevil. Four, have Quicksilver defeat the Brotherhood. Five, introduce a new villain. Six, bring back the Vanisher. So which is it? You want new villains or the Vanisher? Seven, put the X-Men in the next Marvel Annual. And Stan promises to put this entire list in his immediate action pile, which... I'm assuming is the uh, the garbage receptacle. Next, Lizette in Maine. She hates Jean's new haircut. She says she looks like a cross between one of the Beatles and a shaggy dog, and would like to see it curlier. Stan blames Jack, and he says that he'll you know he'll try to get him to do some new hairdos for Jeannie. Stephen in Indiana. He wants Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch to turn good, but not join the X Men. Well, we've got some good news for you there, Steve. He also wants the X-Men to go monthly and also to get an annual, and, uh, well, you probably got some good news for you there as well. So, Stephen, you're all good. Our final letter is another Steve in Illinois. He doesn't want to see the, the Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver go completely good, and he likes them as they are now, just as conflicted bad guys. You know, they got a debt to pay to Magneto, and, uh, but they also have a heart. And, I mean, that does make them, uh, you know, sort of novelty villains, right? They, they are conflicted. They are, uh... They have challenges, which, I mean, they're not flat-out evil, and they're not uh, flat-out good. It's one of those early uh, Shades of Grey sort of situations. Now, the letters are done, but we do have some special announcements. We find out the, that the X-Men versus the Avengers will be in the very next issue, and also the return of Professor X, which, I mean, how can we miss him if he doesn't stay gone, right? Uh, Stan also introduces the MMMS, which is the Merry Marvel Marching Society, and he offers folks the opportunity to join their ranks. 
Last, we have the mighty Marvel checklist. And we go through the entire line of Marvel books here. Fantastic Four number 33, which promises the umpteenth return of Namor the Submariner, because, of course. Amazing Spider-Man number 19, guest-starring the Human Torch. Avengers number 10 features the Avengers breaking up. Probably not for too long. Probably for maybe, I don't know, 20 pages. Uh, Strange Tales number 127 has a car race in the Human Torch Thing story, and uh, Doctor Strange faces off with the Dread Dormammu. Thor 110, uh, Thor faces off against a bunch of bad guys. Okay. Tales of Suspense number 60, Iron Man is wanted for murder, and Captain America just wants to curl your hair. Tales to Astonish number 62, Giant Man versus the Wasp, and a Hulk story that'll be nothing to sneeze at, which is to say... Maybe Stan hasn't written it yet, or maybe it's just, uh, maybe not, there's nothing to it. Finally, Sergeant Fury number 12, and, uh, here one of the Howling Commandos deserts the crew. But that's the entire issue, minus ads. Um, I might be getting something that will have ads in it very soon, so maybe we'll talk about an ad or two every issue. I, I, I can't, I don't want to make any promises, because, uh, just including these letters pages and, and bulletins have, uh, added... Quite a bit of time to the uh, to the process here, but we'll see. We'll see. Maybe we'll if there's an ad that really stands out, we'll uh, we'll discuss it here toward the end of the episode. But what do we think about this one? What do we think about this one? This is a uh, you know I can't even say it's tropey because it is so early in the Silver Age. But uh, I mean it has that Silver Age trope where we wouldn't have an issue if people would take five seconds to, to just talk to one another, right? Beast here. I mean. He quits the team because, of course, <laughs> we have to have... I mean, he. we've had Cyclops threaten to quit. We've had Angel quit when he turned evil for five seconds. Professor X is somewhere on the run. And uh, here, Beast is going to uh, to quit the team. And he does so in a very, very uh, melodramatic way here. Just, you know, hey, I'm still quitting. Hey, I'm, I'm still leaving. Hey, can someone watch me leave, please? Because I'm leaving, I promise. I'm not coming back. Of course, that doesn't last terribly long. It's just one of those things that... Uh, I, maybe it's just a way to fill pages, I don't know But So much of the end of this story The back half of the story would have been fixed by B saying Hey, I have a plan I'm gonna amp up his powers so he Needs us to revert him back to his normal You know, power set But no, he doesn't say that He doesn't say that, all he says is like Hey, you need to see this You need to see this and then you'll you'll understand It's not hard to explain <laughs> It really isn't it's just that that is the Silver Age trope, right? I mean, in fairness, it's a fictional trope. I mean, it's just a, a trope in every form of fiction. A television show where a misunderstanding happens. And that's basically every sitcom ever, right? There's always a misunderstanding that could be just wiped away with a five-second explanation. Uh, but you need to get to that 23rd minute, right? You need to get You need to fill the space. So we get that here. And it's not really the, the worst thing in the world. It's, you know, it's very well told. I, I like using the the pseudoscience here, amping up the powers. It makes you wonder, though, like, if Beast is able to, con- to just create this device, right? A device that could amp up mutant powers here. Why aren't they using it on themselves? Or, or why aren't they using the flip switch to negate it to, like, zap Magneto, right? I mean, I don't know that we'll ever see this device again. Is what I'm trying to say Where it feels like too good a machine To just let, you know, lay by the wayside Or, you know, sit in a corner Collecting dust somewhere It's a a very one and done thing We're probably not supposed to be thinking about it Quite as much as I currently am 
That said, I mean, this was a. It was nice to see a character that wasn't Magneto. Um, Eunice is not is you know, by far not one of the most exciting villains out there. He's fairly dull. He is fairly dull, but uh, he's not Magneto. And frankly, we've had a lot of Magneto lately, so it's nice to see someone someone a little different. Um, I do think I need to uh, at least address. I'm looking at my Audacity uh, screen here and. Somewhere in the middle of my synopsis, there was some sort of, like, temporal disturbance of some sort here. Just things went all over the place. I'll try to edit it out, because I, I don't know what the hell happened there. Just this odd temporal thing. Just, just, I, I really don't know. No promises. I don't know if I'll be able to scrub it out without losing all the audio here, but I will do my best to, to remove whatever I can out of that confusing jumble of a... I, I don't even... I don't even remember what it was. It's just very, very bizarre looking at it here. But uh, apologies if that uh, if it confuses anybody. And I figure we probably we probably should just never mention it again. Is what I'm thinking here. But uh, overall, a fine issue. Nothing to really you know rock our socks. But also, it didn't really set them on fire either. So not bad. Worth a read to be sure. But uh, I think that's probably all I have to say about it. Uh, before we get out of here, let's hop into the mailbag here. We got one letter from uh, our good friend Doc Strange, Billy Dunleavy here. He's writing in about episode number nine, where we talked about Fantastic Four number 28. He says, hey, Chris, this sounds like a fun issue. Obviously, nothing with a lot of weight to it, but fun nonetheless. Looking forward to more episodes. Thanks for doing what you do. And thank you. Thank you so much for, for listening to this uh, the sister series here and uh, and for writing in. It really, really means a lot to me. And yeah, the Fantastic Four issue... Not a whole lot of meat to it, right? It was uh, the the classic Marvel meat cute, where it's like, you know, we have the misunderstanding, we fight for a minute, and then we're we're okay with each other, and uh, we find out what the real threat is. It's uh, you know maybe only notable because it's it's very early, and also uh, like I mentioned during that episode, I think it was probably the highest profile X Men appearance to date. I think that's probably where a lot of folks in the uh, the mid '60s. Maybe first saw the X-Men, maybe first took notice of them, or maybe first read something with them in it. They might have seen it on the racks, but here was the first time they were actually sitting down and, uh, and meeting these characters. So, very important issue for that, uh, for that alone, but, you know, it's still, you know, just another silly Silver Age issue. But uh, thank you so much for writing in, and I would like to invite anybody to uh, take part in the show, share some thoughts, uh, and help keep me motivated in this uh Nearly daily endeavor So you could reach me several different ways You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics On Instagram at 90sXmen You can call into the X-Lapsed hotline at 623-396-JERK For blog posts and show notes You can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com You can join us on Facebook Our little group is 90sXmen Pretty easy to find We've had a, a pretty fruitful weekend Getting a, a few new members there to join in the conversation It's a really good time over there A nice a nice little community, and I hope to see you all there. Uh, finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comics commentary listening needs, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, everything, 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 all the noise sites. And if while you're there you like what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day, I would love for you to spread the word, share the show, tell a friend or two, and perhaps ask them to do the same. It would really help the show out, and it would really help me out personally. So thank you in advance for that. And uh, thank you in the present for allowing me to be part of your day-to-day. It really, really means so much that you choose to listen to my silly little program. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, 
I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.